So Galatians chapter 3, if you look with me beginning in verse 15, uh, Paul says there, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And Father, we just humbly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit as we open the Word of God. As always, Lord, we trust that your Spirit is the one who speaks to us, and we thank you for the truth of the Word of God and the life within it. And Lord, these are unique and difficult times uh, that we are facing as a country. We do pray for Uh, Lord, all of our government officials on a federal and state and local level, uh, God, and all those serving, we pray, give them grace and wisdom as they lead us through this time. Uh, We pray, Lord, for just the spirit of uh, unity and submission among our nation that we could work collectively uh, to be able to just, uh, Lord, honor uh, the guidance and the leadership of those who are trying to direct our nation in the midst of these challenges that we're facing. Uh, Father, we pray for all the medical staff and people who are working tirelessly uh, to try and serve people in the midst of this, that you would protect them, keep them healthy, Lord, strengthen them as they serve uh, people during these times. Uh, And Lord, for each one uh, who's uh, doing their part in the midst of this, we just pray that you'd strengthen them. And Lord, we pray for peace uh, over the hearts and minds of people, that panic would not overcome us that our trust could be in you, and that through this process, many more would come to trust in you in greater and greater ways. Uh, And Lord, we just ask for your protection over our congregation, for your provision for each and every person, and that, Lord, by your Spirit, you would speak to us now through the Word of God, and you'd give us our portion through the Word of God as we look at it together as your family. So, Lord, speak to us now. Uh, Let us hear what you would say by your Spirit And we ask that you would have our attention and that we would hear your voice. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things I greatly appreciate about our God is that he is a uh, promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Uh, And I greatly appreciate that about God and that he wants us, I believe, to believe that we're going to experience his promises, uh, that he has made promises and that he intends to keep them. And in this section, really, of Scripture here, we learn about experiencing God's promises and uh, that they come through the Lord Jesus Christ predominantly. Uh, And if you remember in this section here, the background, Paul's addressing how we receive from God, that is, forgiveness of sin through our Lord Jesus Christ and His work, uh, how we receive the assurance of eternal life in heaven through the gift of God, which comes through Jesus Christ, uh, how we experience being made right with God, how we experience the work of His Spirit and His gracious help and blessing in our lives. And he's been emphasizing that that's not received through human effort, that is by our performance, that as we perform well enough, we kind of earn or achieve that blessing from God, God's obligated somehow to give us a blessing, but rather the opposite, that it's all by faith, by God's gracious free gift that as we believe His promises, we receive from Him. And that's why he concluded in verse 14 last week, emphasizing that reality, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, he said, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, with that backdrop of how we receive because they're God's promises, we receive because God promises and God keeps His promises. It seems Paul wants to emphasize this 
as he now goes on in our text. So if you look at me in verse 15, Paul says to us there, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, that is a human analogy, though it is only of a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. So Paul here is using a, a human example of ordinary life events of men making promises to one another. Uh, And uh, that happens. We make promises, we make contracts, and how when we make promises as men, those things cannot be changed, annulled, or canceled if they're uh, legal contracts and so forth. They have to be carried out. He speaks here in verse 15 of man's covenant. That is, again, the idea of promises that are made uh, through commitments, maybe written contracts, covenants. We a lot of times write out wills that are then executed upon the passing of a loved one that's a written uh, contract. And once those things, he says, verse 15 here, once those things are confirmed, he says, that is once they're established, they're validated and set in place, he says those things cannot be uh, annulled. Uh, That is, they can't be made ineffective. They can't be changed. They can't be altered because they are contracts and legitimate promises that have been set in place. They have to be carried out because those promises of men, they stand firm. Now, the point Paul's making to us is if that is true with man-made promises, man-made covenants, contracts, or wills, he's saying how much more then should we be able to trust in the case uh, of God, how much more are those things true with him? with His promises, with the covenant promises that God makes to us. When Almighty and faithful God makes a covenant promise to His people and He assures us of something via a promise, it's even more certain. And what He is trying to convey to us is no one can annul or put an end to God's promise. Nothing that happens can ever alter a promise of God from coming to pass. No new requirements are going to be put upon that promise in order for us to receive it. Numbers 23, speaking of the assurance of God's faithfulness, says to us this regarding the faithfulness of God to keep His promises. Numbers 23 says, God is not a man so that He does not lie. He is not a human so He does not change His mind. He is, has He ever spoken and then failed to act? And has He ever promised and not carried it through? We should remember that in light of God's promises, that uh, each and every one of God's promises spoken to us in His Word are absolute assurances. They're 100% guarantees because God has both the faithfulness and the power to carry out those things to bring them into fulfillment. And wanting to stay on this theme of a person being justified and made right with God and experiencing God's promises by faith the things that God says in His Word, not by human works, but receiving those things by faith because God has assured it and promised it. He returns now to Abraham, if you look with me in verse 16, to continue to give support to this, uh, in a sense, uh, point that he's trying to make about God's promise. He says, verse 16, Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. So notice, God made many promises to Abraham as well as to his seed that would come after him. And he's referring here in verse 16, we're going to see, to events that took place in Genesis chapter 22, which he will quote in a moment as we read further in the verse. And remember, in Genesis chapter 22, there's that familiar account that we have where uh, God instructs Abraham to go up to the mountain and there to offer his only son whom he loved uh, there as a sacrifice unto him. And after Abraham displays his faith in God through his obedient actions, being willing to actually offer up his one and only son whom he loved greatly, Uh, which, of course, is a picture of what God the Father would ultimately do on that same mountain one day with His Son, Jesus Christ, His beloved Son. Remember, God stopped Him right before He went through that process. And we're told in Genesis 22, which pertains to what we're looking at here, this in Genesis 22. It tells us that God informed Abraham He'd provide a substitute, and this is what the text says. It says, Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was caught a ram in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will 
provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore. And in your seed, take note, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And of course here in Genesis 22, which is what Paul is going to allude to, God was speaking prophetically of how he would ultimately, through the seed of Abraham, bring about his promise to Abraham, his descendants, and really for all of humanity one day in that same location, the Lord would provide the ultimate sacrifice that was necessary. He would offer up his only beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on our behalf so that in the giving of his son, all the world could be spared from the punishment of sin that we deserve and have a relationship with God. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. And that's why in Genesis chapter 2, we notice the last thing we read there in that text is that God said to Abraham, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, with that in mind, look with me in verse 16 as Paul's talking about this. He says, now to Abraham and to his seed where the promise is made. And then he says, he does not say and to seeds, that is plural, as of many, but as of one and to your seed, Paul then says, who is Christ? So Paul makes note here that the ultimate promise of God to bless humanity in the greatest way would ultimately come to mankind bringing salvation. And he says it would not come through the seeds, plural, of Abraham. That is not through the descendants of the Jews nationally. That is to all the descendants or through all the descendants of the Jews. It wouldn't be something that would only come through the descendants, plural, of the Jews. But Paul drives home, taking note what God said, but rather through one specific seed, he says, through one specific seed, ultimately, that promise would come that would be the greatest promise of all. And Paul says that seed is actually Christ. He says the seed, verse 16, who is Christ? See, that seed or person, individual, who the promise of God would come to humanity through would actually be the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who would be the foremost and most important descendant that would ever come through the human uh, line of Abraham. Through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who enter into relationship with Jesus, the seed, the ultimate seed, through him would come the promises of God and experience all the blessings that he would bring to us salvation through Jesus Christ. So Paul then in light of that says verse 17, and this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, that is after this promise given to Abraham, cannot annul, put into no effect, the covenant, he says, that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. So what Paul is saying to us here is the law of Moses, which came over 400 years later after the promise was made to Abraham, Though the law served a purpose, Paul's saying, it cannot, more than that, he says, it will not change or put an end to that original promise of God in the seed of Jesus Christ that God originally intended from the days of Abraham. Now, the reason Paul's addressing this is the false teachers were trying to say, these Judaizers, they were trying to say that since the law of Moses came later on, hundreds of years later, as a new thing when it came in history, that therefore if it's new, it must be the most important thing. And they were trying to convey the idea that the law must have now been intended to take priority over all prior things and that now this was the most important thing and kind of the new and improved way to be able to relate to God. And that's why they were putting such an emphasis on the law of Moses and circumcision. Hey, this is the newest thing, so therefore it must now be the right and new way to relate to God. Implying, Paul says here, if you're saying that, you're implying that the covenant that was confirmed, he says, 
before by God in the seed of Christ, if that was the case, he says, would now be annulled. It would be changed. In other words, you would be saying God's promise is no longer valid anymore then, that God made a promise, but something else came along and made his promise of no effect. That is now God's promise is useless and receiving God's blessing according to the old promise in Christ would no longer be necessary then. That's why Paul says in verse 18, for if the inheritance, that is the free blessing of God, is of the law or from the law, then he says it's no longer of promise. He's saying if we can inherit God's blessing to become right with God positionally uh, by keeping the law, then he says receiving the promise is, uh, receiving it, he says it's no longer of promise anymore. What Paul's trying to convey is what that would mean then is that God's changed his terms, that somehow God's uh, reneging on his contract or he's going back on his original promises that something happened and God said, okay, I'm changing the terms of things now. Uh, he's saying, look, what God said was once true would no longer be true and God wouldn't be upholding his promises. That's why he now argues in verse 18 going on. He says, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What Paul is trying to argue here is God originally gave the assurance of blessing, of being right with him relationally, uh, of being able to experience salvation and right relationship with him. He says he gave it to Abraham originally by promise. That when God gave that promise to Abraham, Abraham believed and it says that God at that moment accounted it to him as righteousness. God would perform something through the seed of Christ to offer his blessing. That was God's original promise, and God keeps his promise. The law did not come along and change or interfere God's original promise. Abraham and others could be assured of that promise that God would fulfill it. And Abraham, as well as others, were to continue to believe that God keeps his promises and performs them. So those who are of faith, are now blessed just like believing Abraham and made righteous before God by their faith in the promise of God, the promise of God's word. It is not based on our ability to perform, but God's assurance to fulfill his promises. That's why Paul was trying to emphasize in verse 18, he's saying God gave by promise. Again, God gave by promise. That has always been how God has wanted to give his help, his blessing unto humanity is by giving to us a promise and wanting us to trust his promises and trust his ability to provide and perform according to his promise because he is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. So what does that mean for us in regards to being in right relationship with God? Well, let me remind you of God's promise in Romans chapter 10. When Paul declares there the promise of God by the Spirit that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So again, we can rest assured those promises of how we are saved will never change. It does not matter what your past has been, your level of failures. It doesn't matter what your situation is. The same promise is available to all of humanity that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's an assurance. Your faith alone is what saves you not your even faithfulness to continue to walk with Christ. It is your faith alone in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead and is the only Savior. And it's our confidence in that promise of God that we are saved, that our forgiveness is assured from all sin, that our assurance of heaven and eternal life is something that is a gift that we can hold on to and that's reserved for us because of our confidence in God's promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord is saved and that we are made righteous by our belief and our confidence in those things. 
Of course, this also applies as well to every one of the multitude of promises we have in our wonderful Bible. And our Bible is filled with promises, every promise of God. Let me say to you this morning, no new things that come our way, and we're dealing with some new things now, no new things that come our way can render God's promises invalid. Nothing that happens to us, nothing that happens in our world can make God's promises null and void, will cause God's promises to be expired, or will cause God to be unable to still fulfill His promises to us. What God promises are guarantees. Despite what happens to us in our world, God's promises are absolutely certain for us. Romans 8 tells us this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We might add in these days, or a pandemic. But Paul goes on to tell us in the Holy Word of God, Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have that blessed promise that the Lord will continue to work in our lives. We have that absolute assurance of His faithfulness for each and every one of us. So let us be assured these promises are ours to hold on to as we navigate new and difficult times. Nothing renders God's promises ineffective. Nothing hinders or limits God in any way as we go through these things. Uh, And again, though the law came 400 years later in our lives, the wonderful thing that we can have assurance about is those things were not intended to replace God's promises. Those are things that we can continue to hold on to. And that's why Paul then asked the next logical question to us. If the law doesn't replace God's promises or set His promises aside, the next logical question, of course, verse 19, Paul says, well, then what purpose then does the law serve? In other words, God does nothing in vain. So if the law came about, God doesn't do things for no reason. Why did the law come about then? What purpose did God have intended for the law of Moses? Well, he adds, verse 19, it was added, that is the law of Moses, because of, he says, transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So the law came, the Bible tells us, in essence, to help reveal to humanity their sinfulness as lawbreakers and also to a degree to try and restrain people who are prone to be lawbreakers from breaking the law more than necessary. So the law does have a purpose in God giving and he says the law was added uh, to mankind because of their transgressions. And again, transgressions, remember, is a word in the Bible that speaks of willful disobedience. It is a term that speaks about knowing where the line is, but defiantly stepping over the line anyway. It's not a matter of making mistakes. It's we know where the line is and we willfully step across it in a defiant act. That's what transgressions are. And it says the law was added because humanity is prone to transgress. That's our nature at times to be defiant and disobedient. But he says the law helped to reveal mankind's sinfulness, to help us to see that we are indeed transgressors, that we are lawbreakers to show us we were guilty. Again, Romans 3 says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. That is, the law helps us clearly recognize that we are breaking the law. And this is something that we all need to become aware of. Before the law came through Moses, right? The law came through Moses. Humanity had already been in existence for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. But when the law came through Moses, Now there was an established parameter where we could see, oh, so obviously we are breaking a law. 
prior to that time, there wasn't, in a sense, other than the conscience of mankind, a way to legitimately measure that, which the law gave the opportunity for that to happen. It gave clear ability. Again, it's kind of like a speed limit sign. Uh, we get on the road, we start driving down the road, and a lot of times we don't realize how prone we are to be transgressors and lawbreakers until we pass that little white sign with the black letters that says speed limit 35 or speed limit 55 or whatever it may be. And then we realize, oh, uh, according to the posting of the law there, I'm transgressing the law. I'm actually violating. So the law identifies to us that we're a lawbreaker and that we deserve, in a sense, to a degree, if you know, possible, punishment uh, because we are guilty of breaking the law. Well, this is the same way with God's law. Romans 3 tells us that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So the law of God serves to reveal to mankind, look, you are a lawbreaker because there's the standard and you're violating the standard by your transgression against God's holy law. And it exposed that we are sinful lawbreakers. It helps us to recognize that we're all guilty. It says it stops up or kind of closes every mouth from trying to justify their innocence. It causes every person to realize we are universally guilty before a holy God. So uh, the law, however, the problem is it can't remove uh, our guilty condition. It reveals our guilty condition. It makes us see our need. But the reason it wants us to see our need is so that we will look to the solution for our need. But the law can't solve that. And that's what Paul is trying to convey to us in this section. Just like a mirror. When you look in the mirror in the morning, it reveals your condition, what you look like after a night of sleep. But it doesn't help you to resolve your messed up hair. Uh, if you have makeup running down your face, the, the mirror can show you your condition but it can't resolve your condition. It can't do anything to provide a solution to change the condition that you see yourself in. Well, the same way with a law, same way with a thermometer. A thermometer it can indicate that we have to a degree a temperature, but if you chew up the thermometer, it doesn't take away the infection or it doesn't change your condition. Same way with God's law. It reveals our condition, but it is unable to resolve our condition. We need help from another place to resolve the condition of our sinful guilt. Well, the law also, as I said, was given to also restrain mankind as transgressors. And of course, this makes sense because by God establishing a righteous standard in the law and a giving of the law, we now have something to recognize what God does desire. What's God's standard? And as that was seen in the law of God, it gives man something to endeavor to please God and a standard to know what displeases God. And so to some degree, the law of Moses came to help restrain to some degree the uh, sinfulness of mankind to diminish our ungodliness. But Paul's trying to say to us here in verse 19, it was given to prepare mankind for the solution to their being sinful and being transgressors against God. That's why he says in verse 19 at the end there, the law was given for transgressions to prepare us until, he says, the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So he says the law was basically God's way of preparing us to get us ready to feel guilty, to see our sinfulness and that we are guilty lawbreakers who deserve punishment to get us to then look for the solution for that which comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. It was God's tool to get us ready for Christ. It was the vehicle to basically get us to the place where we would turn to Christ for salvation and we would be able to receive that from Him. Uh, he says regarding the holy law of God in verse 19 going on there, it was appointed, that is the law, through angels by the hand of a mediator. And then he says, verse 20, now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. So uh, challenging verses here a little bit, but in essence, these verses as well as Acts chapter 7 indicate to us that in some way, angels were involved as a, a intermediary or, or used in a way of mediation between God and mankind in the process of bringing about the holy law of God that came to Moses. In some manner, we're not fully certain, in the midst of this supernatural experience of God giving the law to and through Moses, uh, in some way, angels participated in a form of mediation between God and Moses. 
in this whole process here, being used to bring about the law. Yet, what Paul's trying to indicate in these verses to us is that fact that the angels were some way involved in the mediation-type process of this as mediators is actually what makes the law, in a sense, less special, less valuable in some ways we might say, than the actual promise of God that was given to Abraham originally. For when God gave the promise to Abraham, what Paul's trying to convey to us here, he didn't use any angels. When God gave the promise to Abraham, there was no mediation or mediator. It was totally one-sided. God just promised it, and God was going to fulfill it. It was direct from God to Abraham. That's what meant in verse 20 when he says, A mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Let me read you some other translations of that same verse. It helps kind of give a little bit of light. It says, The very fact that there was no intermediator is enough to show that it was not the fulfilling of the promise. For the promise of God needs neither angelic witness nor human intermediary, but it depends on God alone. Another translation renders that, Now a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement, but God who is one did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. See, God's promise to Abraham was one Sided. It was God's commitment. It was God who would do it. God made the promise. That settled it. And God would fulfill the promise because it was totally based on the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. So Paul says, verse 21, going on, is the law then, he asks, against the promises of God? In other words, does that mean the law works against God's promises? Paul's reasoning this out or hindering it. He says, of course not. Going on, verse 21, for if there had been a law given, which could have been given life, he says, then truly righteousness would have been by the law. So Paul says, if it were possible that by obeying the law, that could give life to us spiritually somehow, that is obedience to the law could translate into giving or imparting some spiritual life to us, then he says, then we could have done it through the law of God. But Paul's pointing out here in verse 21, the weakness of the law. You notice again there in verse 21 in the text, he says, if through the law it could have given life. This is the problem, is the law of God can't impart life. It doesn't impart power. Uh, the law of God, good as it is and wonderful as it is, it simply reveals what is true to humanity about their condition before God, but the law itself provides no power to live out what is right according to God's standards. We therefore need help from someone else to give us life, to impart life, to be able to actually obey and live out what the law of God says to some degree to seek to live pleasing lives to God. You might say, the rules of the law can tell us what is right and wrong, but it gives us no power to be able to carry those things out obediently. The law of God can show us what to do, but it can't help us to fulfill it. Only the person of Jesus can empower us to live as God intends because Jesus, unlike the law, gives life. The promise of life through Jesus Christ is what gives us the power to live according to the way that God wants us to. It's only through the promise of Jesus that we can receive power to live the way that God wants us to live. In Romans 8, Paul says it this way, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Again, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is what set me free from the law of sin and death. Jesus gives us that power. Jesus is the one who gives us life, and therefore we can relate to God the way he wants us to. Verse 22, Paul goes on to say, But the Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So again, notice, Paul says here, verse 22, God's Word has declared everyone, he's saying, universally guilty, and as a prisoner of sin, in confinement as prisoners of sin, so that we could all therefore then freely receive the exact same promise as a group of people who were guilty sinners, and in a sense prisoners under the power of sin, 
universally. So first of all, he wants us to see that God's word has declared mankind universally guilty as prisoners of sin. You see what he says at the beginning of verse 22? The scripture, God's word, has confined all to be under sin. That word confined is a term that speaks to lock up. The idea is to uh, lock someone up like a prisoner in a way where they're confined and they have no way of escape. In essence, what God is saying is the scripture, through what the law tells us, proves that everyone is a guilty lawbreaker, and we all, therefore, are unable to escape this sentence of punishment and death that we deserve because we've all been confined, if you would, onto, onto the process of death row. We're all guilty. It's been established universally, uh, and we're all going to die physically because of sin and humanity. And more than that, we all deserve to suffer and be tortured eternally because of our sinfulness. There's nothing we can do to free ourselves from that guilty condition. We are confined and stuck in that condition, and we can't work our way out of it which creates a dilemma. And the scripture proves that we are under not only the penalty of sin, but even the power of sin. We're confined as prisoners under the power of sin. And the best way I can illustrate that is, you know, before you came to the Lord or, you know, even to this day still, let any person on this earth try and go throughout a day without yielding to some degree to the power of sin in their life. Uh, try to go a few hours, try and go a day without sinning, and you will find very quickly that you fail, uh, that I make mistakes because we are prisoners to some degree of the weakness of our flesh and the power of sin, and we're put under this universal condition of guilt to see our need for looking for a source outside of ourselves so that Jesus can take away the penalty of our sin, and he also can free us ultimately from the power of sin controlling us as prisoners so that we can walk in freedom to a degree and honor the Lord in our lives. So he said, we've all been put under this judgment of being guilty sinners. Verse 22, look what he says, so that, he says, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ could be given freely to all who believe. Notice there is a promise, a promise of salvation, a promise of being pardoned, from the punishment we deserve for our sin, a promise of being set free from the power of sin to control us. And he says, where is that promise? He says, it is given by faith and it's given to us in Jesus Christ. That is, that promise is in the person of Jesus Christ. That when we receive the person of Jesus Christ that God has promised to us as Savior and Lord, we can be forgiven of sin we can receive the power of the Spirit of the Lord coming into our life to help us to overcome sin's power, a relationship with God. And all these things are the promise that God has given to us, and they're experienced by our believing what God's promised, believing in Jesus, trusting that He is the Savior, coming to Him and humbly saying, Lord, unless you help me, I won't be able to overcome the penalty and the power of sin in my life. Lord, I believe that you are the only Savior. Lord, I believe I can't be religious and get myself out of guilt and sin. I believe only Jesus, you can set me free from sin. Lord, I recognize that only you can deliver me from the power of sin. And again, by believing, by faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is the wonderful thing. Everyone can exercise faith. That's why faith is the universal antidote for all of humanity. And we need a universal antidote for the problem and the plague of sin. Not everybody can work to the same degree. Not everybody can perform to the same degree. Not everybody can do the things that others can do. But what we all can do is believe. So God has given us this universal antidote of faith, just choosing to believe as the way to experience the promise through Jesus Christ. So Paul says, verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, he says, verse 25, then we are no longer under a tutor. So Paul here uses a little bit more imagery and analogy here he uses the imagery of a common household practice uh, of uh, basically how a child would pass through a stage of immaturity to come to a place of full adult status. 
And this was common in the ancient world. He uses the imagery here in our verses of a tutor. Now, not like we envision a tutor where you know, we're struggling with our math, and so therefore we get somebody to help us understand math better. The idea here of a tutor is what was called the pedagogos. Uh, and the pedagogos was basically someone assigned as sort of a chaperone to a child in their younger years to help educate them, but more than that, prepare them, bring them to a place through ongoing supervision, through ongoing developmental process. It was the job of the pedagogos to develop and to bring that child along till they came to the place where ultimately they were properly ready and educated to transition into full adult status in the society. And once the pedagogos or the tutor brought them to that place, the role of the pedagogos was no longer necessary in their life to serve in the way it did. They had come to full adult status. Well, this is the idea, Paul says, of like what the law did. It was our tutor, our pedagogos, to bring us to the ultimate state of a relationship directly with God through his Lord and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul's saying that in these verses here in verse 23 to 25. He says, before faith came, we were being kept under guard, he says, by the law, the supervision of the law, kept for the faith which would afterward, he says, be revealed. Verse 24, therefore, he says, the law was our tutor. It was our pedagogos to ultimately bring us into relationship with Christ that we might be justified by faith, Paul then says, verse 25, but after faith has come, once we have faith in Christ and we have a relationship with God through Jesus, he says, we're no longer under the pedagogos, the law of God, to keep us in a place until we've come into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 26, he says, for you are all sons of God. That's where we want to be in a relationship with God. Through faith, he says, in Christ Jesus. So each person, notice, ultimately God wants to come to a place of being a son or daughter of God directly through a relationship with Jesus. He says, you are all sons, children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now take notice, the Bible teaches very clearly that we are not automatically from birth, naturally, children of God. We are all created by God and we have value to God but spiritually, we do not become a son or daughter of God legitimately from a biblical perspective until we come into a relationship of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and experience a spiritual birth just like we had to have a natural birth. Our spiritual birth is what makes us then become a son or daughter of God. And the way to experience becoming a child of God legitimately, spiritually a child of God, he says, ultimately, is through our faith in Christ. John says it this way in his gospel, John 1. To all who received him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. See, we must be born of God. When are we born of God? When we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior for our sin when we believe upon what he did in his finished work and his death and resurrection, when we believe upon that, but more, not just intellectual, when we then make a decision to receive that for ourselves, believing transitions to receiving it personally for ourselves at that moment is when we experience being born of God spiritually. And we then become, through that faith in Christ, a son or a daughter of the living God. And verse 27 says, when that happens as well, as many as you were baptized into Christ, he says, have now put on Christ. So he's talking about now once we become a son or a daughter of God, something wonderful that we receive. At the moment of our spiritual conversion or birth, our spiritual position changes. Our standing before holy God changes, which is a wonderful thing to know here. He says, when we were spiritually baptized into the life of Christ, Paul says here, Again, baptism speaks of immersion, submerging something into another thing, and we were fully baptized or immersed into the life of Jesus Christ, in His death, in His resurrection, and we receive a new identity. Again, this is pictured symbolically when we water baptize people uh, in the ocean or wherever we do a water baptism. As we put that person as a Christian 
into the waters. They go under the water. They disappear. There's a sense is the, the putting to death of the old life symbolically. And then when they reemerge back out of the water in a different condition, soaking wet and their hairs on, they, they emerge in a different condition. And this is a picture symbolically of being baptized spiritually into the life of Jesus Christ. In his death and resurrection, we put an end to our old way of life. From God's perspective, anyone who's in Christ, the old is past, and we're a new creation. We're brand new. We've been resurrected to a new life spiritually now with Jesus Christ. But it illustrates how we've also received this new promise of a wonderful standing with God. Paul says we've been baptized spiritually into Christ, and here's the good news in light of that. Therefore, we have now put on a new identity before God. We've put on Christ by faith. And God sees us as being in Christ. He sees us in His Son, Jesus Christ, unified with Him. That is, our standing before God is no longer based upon our past failures that may cause us at times to worry or feel guilty. It's not even based on our present practice and performance because none of us still performs perfectly even after we follow Jesus Christ. But our standing before God in our position is based upon the righteousness of Jesus. We've been put into Jesus and God receives us and looks upon us in the same way He does receiving and looking upon His own righteous Son, Jesus Christ. That is wonderful news to know we have that full acceptance because of what Jesus provides to us as we've been put into Christ and God views us and accepts us on those terms. That's why Hebrews 4 says this to us regarding approaching God as a Christian who has faith in Christ. He says, Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How wonderful to know that because we have put on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, then God views us and accepts us and receives us, even as He would His own Son, Jesus Christ, because we are now immersed with Him, hidden in Him and one with Him, that we can boldly come to the throne of God, no matter how well we've been performing in our life spiritually, what we've been doing, we can come directly to God by faith, believing that we have a standing with God of righteousness because of our trust in the finished work of Jesus, not our performance or how we're living our life, but by faith alone in the gracious work of God through Christ, we can come to Him whatever we have need of. What a wonderful thing to know that position is what our standing is before God by faith. Paul then concludes in verse 28 and 29 saying, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for if you are all, he says, for you are, excuse me, all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, that is, if you belong to him, then you are also Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So notice, another wonderful aspect of God's promise to the Christian is we experience an equality among God's family now, a unity together, and knowing that we're all going to one day experience the same eternal inheritance as sons and daughters of God who are heirs of the kingdom of God. You know, in the ancient world, they often put much emphasis upon class distinctions. And that's what Paul's addressing there in verse 28, how they treated each other in unloving ways and they had walls of division because of class distinctions. And he says, therefore, uh, the distinction and differences that were there between Jews and Greeks, there was this division between them. Because of ethnic or racial tension, we might say, the Jews and the Greeks had animosity. They disliked one another. They wouldn't associate with one another because of these distinctions of ethnicity and nationality. He says as well, the slaves and the freedman. Slaves despised those who were free because they had their freedom. And those who were free looked down upon slaves. They thought it was an inferior social class, and so they looked down upon them. And there was separation socially between them, even males and females. In the ancient culture, females were oppressed tremendously until the gospel has liberated uh, humanity to a degree to see the value of women, the same value that they see men. And the gospel of Christ is what brought that about to a great degree. Yet, he says, despite these separations and divisions, we are now, through the work of Christ, all unified. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer the need to have separation between Jew and Greek. In Christ, we've become one, Paul's trying to say, because we all have the same Father. We all have one spiritual Father. And the value of our differences and distinctions, they serve their purpose. 
It's okay to have diversity and distinction. Those things are by design. But what Paul's saying is those things should never have to separate us now because from God's perspective, he sees us as one spiritual family in Christ. And he wants us to realize, as he says here in verse 28, there should not be this emphasis on Jew or Greek, slave or free. He says, for you're all one in Christ. What he wants us to see is, look, our highest identity now is that we're Christians that we're children of God. And we can be different in these other ways, but our highest identity is we are all Christians, we're all children of God, and we are one family, living together, loving one another, and putting the same value on each and every person. And ultimately, he says, verse 29, we are all headed to the same eternal home, to the same eternal home in heaven. You see what he says, verse 29? He calls us their heirs according to the promise, that if we are united with Christ, we are all now equally heirs of God the Father. We're heirs of the kingdom of God. An heir is someone who freely inherits as a gift something that was promised to them from someone who loves them and graciously has provided it for them. And we are heirs of God. God has promised that we will inherit the gift of eternal life. That's our inheritance, eternity, the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter what your life experience is now. It does not matter whether you are rich or poor or what you go through on this earth. Listen, the end is good. You are an heir of the kingdom of God, and there's a good ending for everybody all around on this globe. Everybody who has trust in Jesus Christ is going to inherit the same thing. And that is the glorious promise to the Christian the assurance that we are going to inherit something wonderful when all of the chaos and difficulty and hardships of life are over because of our trust in Jesus Christ. Speaking of that inheritance, Revelation 21 says this, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Listen, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can rest assured this is God's promise for your future experience, what is described one day. That is what your future inheritance will be. Look, we need to know God keeps all of his promises. You can rest in that assurance and believe God's promises that you might experience God's promises.